From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Richard, thank you very much. I'm Air Commodore Charlie Wilcock. I'm the head of the Royal Air Force Medical Services. And it's my pleasure this evening to welcome all of you on behalf of Lady Matthews and Callum Stewart to the 2014 Stewart Memorial Lecture. William Kilpatrick Stewart graduated in medicine in 1936 and joined the RAF Volunteer Reserve in 1938. He was appointed to the staff of the RAF Physiology Laboratory at Farnborough in 1940, where he conducted original research in all of the key aviation physiology disciplines, including altitude medicine, extremes of heat and cold, acceleration, G protection, and oxygen systems. Using a converted Gloucester Gladiator, he flew some 300 experimental test flights. Having been instrumental in setting up the RAF Institute of Aviation Medicine, also at Farnborough, AVM Stewart was then appointed as its commanding officer in 1947, and he remained in post until his death in 1967 at the early age of 53. He was a remarkable medical scientist who dedicated his life's work to studying human physiology in flight, to advancing the science of aviation medicine, and ultimately to reducing the aviation risk to life. AVM Stewart was awarded the Air Force Cross in 1941. He was invested CBE in 1953 and CB in 1964. And this eponymous lecture was established in 1969 to honor his life and work. Tonight, we are very pleased to welcome Dr. John Roberts, who began his medical training in 1978 at St. Thomas's Hospital in London, later joining the Royal Air Force as a medical cadet on a short service commission. And I think John and I shared that experience as contemporaries, I'm trying to see where he is. Uh, we jo- yeah, there he is. We joined pretty much John at the same time, didn't we, and followed each other the same day, there you go, and followed each other through the system. John went on to serve in the Royal Air Force for 18 years, completing his GP training, obtaining his diploma in aviation medicine in 1992, and becoming an accredited GP trainer. After leaving the RAF, John joined the Occupational Health Department of the National Air Traffic Services and undertook his specialist training in occupational medicine, gaining membership of the faculty in 2006. He's continued his interest in medical training and is currently the training program director for the industry-based trainees in the London School of Occupational Medicine. Now as the chief medical officer of Nats Occupational Health Services and the Aeromedical Center, John is very well placed to speak to us on the changing roles of air traffic controllers. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome 
Dr. John Roberts, to deliver the 2014 Stuart Memorial Lecture. Thank you, Air Commodore Wilcox. Distinguished guests, members of the Royal Aeronautical Society, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honour to be here this evening to present the Stuart Memorial Lecture. And I can hope, hopefully give you an insight into a part of the aviation industry that is perhaps not as well known as it could be. I've worked for Nats for some 14 years now. Nats is the UK's leading air navigation service provider and we employ approximately 1,900 controllers. The focus of tonight's lecture will be on the future role of air traffic controllers, a relatively small number of people who play a key role in keeping our skies safe. However, before we can consider the future, I think it would be wise to consider where we are now and indeed how we got to where we are today. So I hope you will bear with me if I take you on a short journey to explain how air traffic control developed to where we are today before we look at air traffic control of the future. So in outline I plan to discuss what air traffic control actually means, how it has developed into the, the system in operation today, and then consider why change is and has to happen. How this change will affect the role of air traffic controllers and some of the issues that aviation medicine experts need to consider in planning for the future. The role of air traffic control is generally agreed to be able to secure the safe, orderly and expeditious flow of air traffic within controlled airspace. In other words, to enable public transport, private, business and military aircraft to fly as far as is practicable when, where and how they wish as safely as possible. From the dawn of aviation, it soon became clear that each pioneering aviator did not have the skies to themselves, with ever-growing numbers of aircraft taken to the skies. In Europe, following the rapid expansion in aviation during the Great War, it soon became apparent that some form of order was needed, especially around the earliest aerodromes. The first recorded use of any form of air traffic control for commercial flights was in the 1920s in the UK. Here at Croydon Airport, flags and coloured lanterns were used to give planes clearance for takeoff and landing, with radios being used to acknowledge position reports from aircraft. The 1940s saw perhaps the most significant technology jump in air traffic control, with radar becoming a vital tool in determining aircraft position. In 1944, the Chicago Convention began to develop rules of airspace, aircraft registration, 
and safety. And indeed, Annex 11 of the Convention dealt with the establishment and operation of air traffic control. Now, at this time, there were approximately 18,000 aircraft movements per year in the UK airspace. The growth in aviation continued. By the 1960s, there were up to half a million movements in UK airspace per year, and aircraft were now beginning to use air routes first developed in the 50s. Secondary surveillance radar, which allows for additional aircraft information such as altitude to be displayed, was also introduced. By the 1980s, the number of aircraft movements in UK airspace had exceeded a million. Computers were now beginning to feature more commonly, for example, in the printing, calculation, and distribution of flight progress strips, and combining the radar pictures from multiple radar transmitter sources. The 2000s saw another doubling of aircraft using UK airspace to over 2 million, and this reached a peak in 2008. Despite the fall that followed the financial crisis, the number of movements are gradually increasing and are close to the 2008 peak levels again. So currently, NATS handles approximately 7,000 aircraft movements a day. And there are approximately 500 aircraft in UK airspace at any one time. In the European context, there are some 26,000 aircraft in European airspace movements every day. So, with such vast numbers of aircraft all trying to travel safely through the air, often trying to get into the same place, ideally at the same time, how can this be managed safely? Now, I'm not sure if there are any controllers in the audience, and if there are, I already send my apologies. This is now going to be a doctor's view on how to do air traffic control. I think two important principles to understand are those of separation and sectorization. When an aircraft flies in controlled airspace, the Air Navigation Service provider guarantees that that aircraft will be able to fly in a protected bubble of airspace around it, into which no other aircraft will infringe. This is separation. And the standards of separation excuse me, have been laid down by ICAO. And you will see from this slide that in terms of altitude, in controlled airspace, aircraft are separated by 1,000 feet vertically and 5 miles in trail and lateral separation. However, this is impractical as you get closer to airports, and so here the separation can drop to three nautical miles. And provided the aircraft has suitably uh, sensitive uh, altimeters, vertical separation can, can drop to 500 feet. So, how is this separation actually achieved? 
there are various tools available to allow the position, altitude, speed, and direction of travel to be made known. I've already mentioned radar and radio communication. Computer systems, such as the National Aerospace System, and many other hardware and software systems, data linking, help with flight planning and some flight prediction. However, the key component in air traffic management at the present time is the Mark I Human Air Traffic Controller. These are specially selected, very highly trained individuals who are able to process all these data inputs from all these tools and to use their knowledge of aircraft types, aircraft characteristics, desired routing, local met, etc., to perform and create a 3D mental picture of the airspace to allow them to deconflict aircraft by instructing them to climb, descend, or turn. This then brings us on to the next principle of air traffic, that of sectorization. Now, with 7,000 aircraft per day, or up to five, excuse me, or up to 500 aircraft at most times in UK airspace, it is obvious that no matter how good our controllers are, there is no way that one controller could manage all that traffic at one time. It is therefore necessary to, to divide the work of separation up into manageable levels. And this is currently done by dividing airspace up into discrete areas which are bounded geographically and by altitude. This slide shows the area of airspace that is controlled by sonic area control. The upper airspace, which is above 24,500 feet, is represented here. And it is controlled by our area control centre, which is based near Southampton. The north of England and Scotland is controlled by Swanwick's twin up at Prestwick near Eyre. You'll see that the airspace is divided into smaller areas, and these are called sectors. This slide adds some more detail to the Swanwick area control sectors. Each of these sectors has a unique radio frequency, and all aircraft in that sector will be listening in on that frequency for air traffic control instruction. On leaving the sector, the air traffic controller hands aircraft over to the adjacent sector, advising the aircraft of the new frequency. You will note that not all the sectors are the same size. Airspace is very carefully planned in terms of traffic flow and complexity. So, although Sector 9 is enormous, air traffic in Sector 9 tends to be well-established en route and will require minimal input from controllers. Whereas Sector 22, although geographically far smaller, is handling more complex air traffic, entering and leaving UK airspace that will need to climb and descend safely to complete their journeys.
each sector has its unique characteristics, such as usual entry or exit points, airways within it, crossing points of airways, special safety areas, traffic flow patterns. And within each sector, controllers may have 15 or more aircraft on frequency, and I'm sure that the pilots amongst you will have experienced times when controllers are transmitting instructions and receiving readback in a constant flow. With such a high day-to-day -day workload, a controller cannot be expected to be valid in every single sector. But we would expect them to train and validate in two or possibly three adjacent sectors. See this sector 10 and 11 is highlighted. Just remember that when I'll be showing you a slide in the future, as that sector will feature on the slide. This slide is a sort of fisheye view of the area control room at Swanwick. Now, each of these curved banks represents radars covering a particular sector. So we have one set of sectors there, another there. They tend to be arranged geographically. So these cover the West End, and these more the sort of Midlands. These are the supervisors who are keeping a check on what's actually happening in the sectors. This area is known as flow control. It is actually of particular note for today's lecture. This area allows traffic managers to receive information from other ANSPs, Eurocontrol, which allows them to have approximately two hours warning of the air traffic coming into UK airspace. And this allows the managers to be able to plan the number of controllers covering the sectors, which sectors are open, and allows our controllers to have breaks at appropriate time. As you can see, this room is huge, and there may be 50 or more controllers working all the sectors at any one time. Now, this slide shows one sector in a little bit more detail. Sitting here, this gentleman, he's not actually a controller. He's an assistant, and his role is really administrative, looking after the administrative tasks of the sector. Unfortunately, with advancing technology, this chap's role is now virtually obsolete. Sat next to him, this gentleman, is the planning controller. His role is to coordinate incoming and outgoing traffic from adjacent sectors, making sure that it's being presented to this sector in an orderly fashion. This gentleman is the tactical controller, and it is he who is actually talking to the aircraft. So, he will have a 3D picture of the air traffic in his sector, and will be issuing instructions to turn, climb, or descend to ensure that all the transiting aircraft pass through his sector of responsibility safely. Now, 
If you look carefully, you will see above his radar position are two little triangles with numbers 10 and 11. And that represented that sector I showed you on a previous slide out over the Humber. This means that the traffic at the moment is fairly light because we have two sectors joined together. And that's represented by having these two triangles, triangle uh, blocks placed on the top of the radar so that other controllers can see. What this means is that two sectors have been joined together as one and are operating on a single frequency. This is known as bandboxing. Obviously, when the traffic levels pick up again, the sectors will be split out and each sector will again have its own unique frequency with one tactical and one planning controller looking after each. Now, unsurprisingly, controllers who work in this environment are known as area controllers. As I mentioned, Swanwick area control sectors are at 24,500 feet and a, excuse me, having a bit of fun with this, 24,500 feet and above. Underneath it, get to the right one eventually, I'm sure. Underneath it sits the airspace assigned to London Terminal Control, which controls the low-level traffic in the southeast, including the approaches and departures to London's five main airports. This is an extremely busy environment in very complex airspace and with a very high workload for our controllers. Again, the airspace is chunked into sectors, which are some of the busiest in the world. Controllers here are taking aircraft from area control and handing them over to the airport controllers at a rate suitable for them to be able to handle, as well as taking departures from each of the five airports and transiting them on their routes. So approach room has approach controllers. Now, at other airports away from London, the approach function may be co-located at the actual airport, such as in Glasgow or Edinburgh, for example. However, due to the complexity of the London airspace, the approach function for each airport is grouped together and is supplied by the Swanwick Terminal Control Room. This means that Heathrow, Gatwick, Stansted, Luton and City airports are tower only. The controllers there work from the air traffic control tower based at the airport. So this brings us on nicely to airport operations. Obviously, separation and sectorization do not apply here, but the task is no less complex. Controllers at airports generally take aircraft when they are within visual range of the airport. They must ensure it is safe for aircraft to land and depart the airport, as well as ensuring the safety of aircraft taxiing around the airport, avoiding other aircraft and ground vehicles. To illustrate this complexity, London Heathrow Airport, as I'm sure you know, operates at 98% runway capacity. There's no room for error. And with over 1,200 movements a day, I'm sure you can appreciate 
how hard the controllers are working at Heathrow. There are over 200 taxiway crossing points at Heathrow which have to be controlled. And at the last count, over 30,000 airfield driving permits have been issued, which means there's an awful lot of ground traffic driving around out there. <coughs> so I hope I've now given you a good overview of what our controllers currently do. Now, hopefully, we'll be able to get this animation to work. And this really puts it all together. This is a typical radar picture, as would be presented to our controllers. Each of these little green stars is an aircraft, and the orange tail behind it is the trail. The longer the trail, the faster the aircraft is moving. The radar picture has the aircraft call sign, British Airways. It has its altitude and the double L indicates it's coming into Heathrow. Now, in case you can't make it out, there is Heathrow Airport in the centre, and this is the River Thames going out towards the channel. The aircraft here are established on the glide path and are being brought in to land. You'll notice that up here, aircraft seem to be going round and around, and I'm sure we've all been stuck there up in the Bovington stack. Now, just to let you know, one controller would not be looking after all this. You'd have a controller looking after the stack. You'll then have a controller taking aircraft off the stack and beginning to feed it into the Heathrow flight path. That controller is also having to deconflict aircraft that are taking off from Heathrow and are trying to get across to Europe. I don't know if you noticed there, a purple target flashed up. That's an infringer. That is somebody who is in airspace and he shouldn't be there. Now, just to let you know and put you at ease, this picture is actually speeded up five times. But even so, I think you will appreciate that our controllers are working very, very hard. And as I say, the controllers operating here, this area, and bringing these aircraft are really incredibly skilled, and they're using their mental picture to actually make sure that separation is maintained. Next, I think, it is worth considering ATCO selection and training, as this will need to change to reflect the future roles. During periods of previous recruiting, NATS has typically had four new entry courses per year to maintain the number of ATCOs uh, to cover those ATCOs retiring or leaving the company. This slide gives some details of the recruiting process. Typically, we get 3,000 expressions of interest for every course. This is whittled down by a very simple online sift and will lead to about 1,700 controllers being put through a series of online tests, which basically consists of a few little games, pattern recognition, etc. Of the 1,700, 600 will pass and will actually come to face-to-face -face testing and interviews. If they are successful, about 120 will get through and go on to specific ATC testing. Of the 120, we'll be pleased to get 25 into our training programme. And with luck, of the 25, 20 will come out as valid controllers. 
Now, I don't know if you can see here, but this infographic is quite interesting as it shows the distribution of our applicants. These levels here, GCSEs, A-levels, graduates and postgraduates. And you can see most candidates come from fairly young age because we have the age cycle around the outside. So they come in having studied two A-level or graduate level. But interestingly, you note here, we've got 58-year-olds applying. The areas that the specific ATC testing, we're looking at these because what we're actually looking for are people with excellent scanning and 3D problem solving and the ability to do all this in real time. However, the future will be different and will these skills be appropriate to the future controller? So just a final word on training. The 25 controllers per course will come to our college and undertake basic training where they will learn the basic principles of air traffic control, air law, meteorology. They will then, after three months, be streamed into their specialties, be it tower controllers, approach controllers, or area controllers specific. And they're given a further nine months of intensive training at the college. They are then posted to their units where they will receive very extensive on-the-job training, initially on our simulators, but eventually, under very con controlled conditions, they will start being exposed to live traffic. The whole process from start to finish takes anything between two to five and a half years. So far, I've described the work environments our controllers actually working, some of the tasks they carry out, and how we train them. So why are things actually going to change? This slide gives a representation of the factors that are driving change in the aviation industry. Now, I'm not going to go through them all, but I will touch on just a few. As our customers, the airlines, are looking for reductions in their costs. And the cost of air traffic is a significant part of their operating costs. This is also reflected on the continual financial pressure being applied to air navigation service providers by governments and national regulators to cut the costs. And at present, manpower is currently the major cost for all air navigation service providers. Fuel bills are also a major cost to airlines. Now, currently, each country within Europe has its own ANSP, Air Navigation Service Provider, each with their own centres and sectors, providing its own service to airlines flying through its airspace. The problem with this is it adds complexity, it adds costs, And it makes it much harder to optimise air traffic routes within Europe. What this actually means is that aircraft rarely fly exactly as they want to. They do not often fly direct routes and are handed over from sector to sector and are often held at lower altitudes, which make the flights far less fuel efficient. 
One interesting statistic is that every flight in Europe travels 42 kilometers further than they need to. This greater fuel burn adds to the cost and the CO2 burden. With all the environmental pressures, this is becoming less and less acceptable. In addition, markets are changing. New routes are being established. There is major growth in the Middle East and Far Eastern markets, and this rapid growth has to be managed by air navigation service providers to ensure that safety can be maintained. Delivery of aircraft to some carriers is now being delayed, not because of problems with manufacturing, but that the airspace these aircraft are going to operate in is unable to cope with the predicted traffic levels. The current system appears overly complex with lots of duplication and protectionism. So, what is the future? There is a need for modernization. Nearly all air traffic control is based on legacy systems that have grown up often from the 40s, 50s and 60s. It's had bits bolted on to keep it going. One of our directors likened this to having a washing machine that you know and love and you keep spending more and more and more to keep it going. As he said, isn't it time to go out and buy a new one? And in air traffic terms, wouldn't it be nice if we all bought the same sort of systems so that we could all work together? This approach may cost more initially, but the savings it could potentially generate could be significant. In order to try and reduce the complexity and resulting problems of national airspace restrictions within Europe, the European Commission launched its single European Sky Initiative, which sought to address these issues through legislation and regulation and set targets for safety, the environment, capacity and cost efficiency. As may be expected, the area where greatest focus has been placed and indeed greatest progress has been made in reforming Europe's ATM industry is in technology. As part of the Single European Skies programme, the Single European Sky Air Traffic Management Research Project, or CISAR for short, was established to focus efforts on developing a suitable air traffic control infrastructure that could be integrated across Europe. So that's not about ensuring that everybody has the same system, but it's about ensuring the various systems we use are interoperable and operating to consistent standards. An example of this collaboration is the interoperability through European Collaboration Project, or ITEC for short. ITEC is a joint collaboration of three European air navigation service providers, AENA from Spain, DFS from Germany and NATS, to deliver a new flight data processing system which will support the future systems in air traffic management. The core ITEC product is common between the three partners, which allows exchanging of knowledge at this early stage and the advantage of cost reduction and cost sharing between the three partners 
in the future once iTech goes operational. Some people are predicting that within the next five years, systems could be in use which allow flights to be planned and deconflicted days and not just minutes in advance. After all, airlines plan their schedules months in advance. In general, they know where and when they want to fly. With future harmonization, interoperability and cooperation, new systems will be able to take all this data and plan air traffic, flows and routes days in advance. It is also clear that partnerships and alliances are needed to try and remove some of the, the borders in the skies and defragment Europe's airspace. To help promote this, the Commission has introduced legislation to ensure neighbouring air navigation service providers collaborate by requiring them to establish functional airspace blocks or FABs. There are nine FABs in Europe now, and the UK Ireland FAB was the first to be created in 2008, and in its first four years alone, it saved 70 million euros, including more than 70,000 tonnes of fuel. The UK Ireland FAB is Europe's North Atlantic gateway, with around 80% of North Atlantic traffic passing through UK or Irish airspace. As I said, the main emphasis has been on technology, but we as medics need to consider how these changes will impact on the Mark I human controller. As we've discussed, today's controllers are being provided with rich streams of data which they use their skills to plan and prevent confliction by deciding on interventions and telling the aircraft which actions to take to maintain separation. But things are already changing. IFACTS, or Interim Future Area Control Tool Support, is a NATS-developed system which can show area controllers the predicted trajectories of aircraft in their sector up to 18 minutes in advance. It can warn of potential future confliction and suggest solutions and allows controllers to test these solutions to see if separation is maintained. Since its introduction, IFACTS has steadily increased the capacity of our controllers to handle busier traffic. But the controllers are still making the interventions. However, the new systems potentially will have the ability to make interventions, sending data-linked instructions direct to the aircraft, thus taking the human out of the equation. At this point, the human will move to a monitoring role, ensuring the systems are functioning properly. Indeed, whereas at present the majority of controllers' work is on the, the tactical controlling, it's likely that in future the main focus of activity will be in planning. Planning to allow deconfliction to occur days in advance. 
Yes, of course, there are going to be variables coming at short notice, but we are assured the systems will be able to cope. I showed you flow control. In the future, I think this area will become far more important. There will be fewer tactical controllers. In fact, sectors are likely to disappear. And controllers will no longer work in sectors, but be valid in specific tools and systems. So I hope you can see that the future of controllers will look very different. But as these changes are in the near future, they will impact on current controllers. And these have been selected for their interventionalist skills, which may not be the same as those skills required for the monitoring and planning roles of the future. So, what areas do aviation medicine experts need to consider and be able to advise operational managers and regulators on? I think some of the more important areas of special concern are change management, fatigue, medical standards, and demographic factors. The future will bring new programs of work, new technologies, and changing work practices. Now, controllers are conservative by nature. After all, they like to be in control. However, they are intelligent enough to accept change that improves work, the workplace. Acceptance of new technology is far more desirable than them having new technology thrust upon them just because it is new technology. If ANSPs attempt to do this without their buy-in, this will lead to resentment, worry, and increased stress in the ATCO population all of which will impact on their capacity to work and hence impact on safety. So I think it's vital that new programs and technology should be introduced sympathetically and that the impact these changes have on the human being is considered and that the operational community is brought into the planning stages as early as possible. We must also look at personal adaptability. Now, some people can accept and embrace change far more easily than others, and there may well be a future requirement to try and identify change-resistant individuals and to look at ways to address any specific issues that they may have impacting on their ability to be able to cope with change. A supportive attitude from the employer will be far more far more successful than the confrontational one. Finally, in this area, we must look at the required skill sets for future controllers. Our human factors experts are already working very hard with our recruiters to try and address these issues. Fatigue is always a concern in air traffic management, and most navigation service providers will have policies and educational programs in place to give advice on the management of fatigue. With future financial constraints possibly leading to a reduction in manpower, there may well be a pressure on managers to get more from their staff. 
I am also very concerned that ATCOs are now subject to a virtually continuous stream of new work programmes and new technologies being introduced. It takes time for the controllers to learn the new procedures and this requires increased mental capacity, which in itself is fatiguing. Could all this change and constant learning of new systems and method of work produce chronic change fatigue, which would impact on safety? I believe that more objective evidence is needed to attempt to quantify fatigue and identify safe working practices in view of potential future demands. Next, I would like to consider medical standards. Currently, ATCOs are regulating medically to standards very similar to those of commercial pilots. The logic is that controllers should have an acceptably small risk of an incapacitating event that could impact on flight safety. Commonly understood as the 1% rule, it was based on data from the flight tech back in the 70s. It did not take into account the very different work environment of controllers and has not taken into account the additional safeguards derived from technology. Indeed, research undertaken by Magid Gerges in my department and Stuart Mitchell of the CAA have shown that these standards may be far too pres prescriptive and may lead to APCOs being excluded from the workplace by medical standards that are no longer appropriate. The planned technology of the future may bring additional safety benefits, making it imperative that the medical regulators review standards and change them to reflect the risks involved in actual working practices. Otherwise, they may be guilty of discriminating against people unnecessarily. Finally, the ATCOs of the future may be older than previously. European legislation, as I'm sure you're aware, now makes it illegal to discriminate on age. And so we, mean, we may need to look at the aging controller more so than we have done in the, in the past. I'm sure you will now realise that being an operational controller is extremely mentally challenging. Younger controllers just have the natural mental capacity to process huge amounts of information. However, evidence is suggesting that cognitive decline for some tasks can start in the early 30s. And our older ATCOs freely admit that they are no longer able to process data as quickly as their younger colleagues and they really rely on their experience to be able to manage the traffic. That said, Nats, as yet, does not have a single controller over 65. Now, as our controllers are extremely high-value individuals, it is cost-effective to try and keep them in the best physical and mental shape to allow them to continue to function at a higher level as possible. Many workplaces throughout all sectors of industry have shown very good return on investment of wellness programs and it may be that this is an area that all air navigation service providers need to invest in in future. But despite our best efforts it is likely that the aging ATCO will eventually not have the processing capacity to continue in the role. 
employing organisations will need to have policies and procedures in place to deal with this. Now, there may be a temptation to try and medicalise this ageing process with employers looking to ill health retire APCOs. This should be resisted and I would advise that employers look at other ways of dealing with this based on competency. It may be necessary to look at changing working practices to reduce fatigue and pressure on older controllers so that they can continue to work in some form of operational capacity for as long as is safe for them to do so. So, in summary, I think that the next five to ten years will see dramatic changes in air traffic management and there is no doubt that the role of the controller will change significantly. It is vital that medical and human factor specialists are involved in research to inform and educate the future operators and to ensure that medical regulation keeps pace with technological changes. The future is already happening and it is beholden upon us to keep pace with this, to help maintain the excellent safety record of our industry. Thank you. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.